Welcome to Real Talk JavaScript, the weekly talk show with advice and insight into the technologies and practices currently being used to build web applications in the real world. Each week, Ward Bell, Dan Wallen, and John Papa talk to industry experts about their experiences writing, deploying, and maintaining web applications in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to Real Talk JavaScript. This is episode 71, Angular at Scale. And this could kind of really go for any of the modern JavaScript tools. But our guest today, Dan, is going to talk about specifically some of the largest Angular implementations that uh, I'm aware of out there. You've written a lot of Angular stuff too, haven't you, uh, Dan? Oh, just a little bit, yeah. So first off, Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year, man. We're recording this in the new year, but I think it'll air well into it. Yeah, it's January 2nd today, but yeah, we'll uh, get to it later. But uh, yeah, having done a lot of JavaScript, not only, uh, well, with other libraries and frameworks, but Angular specifically, it definitely gets more challenging with uh, the more enterprise scale thing we're going to talk about. So yeah, I'm excited about discussing that more. Yeah, and it's it's neat because, you know, whether you're using Vue, React, Ember, Angular, you know, Svelte, whatever, some of the problems are, are really the same. I mean, don't you agree, yeah. like when you get to large, big apps? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it all comes down to a couple things, like how you're going to organize your code, uh, what's going to be best for team maintenance? What's best for, you know, I just hired somebody and they need to be productive quickly. All these challenges, testing, deployment, all that fun stuff. If only we had a guest that could actually speak to these things. Yeah, that would be convenient. But, yeah, I uh, know. Yeah, well. You know, I know this guy named Jeremy <laughs> Lickness. He's pretty good at it. Uh, Jeremy, are you around? I <laughs> might just be around. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so it's time for corny introductions. For yeah, those of you well. out there that don't know Jeremy, he is a cloud advocate at Microsoft and has been writing line of business software for 25 years. And he's also the author of several technology books and an international speaker. Jeremy, welcome. Thank you. Excited to be here. It's a great way to kick off the new year. It really is. It's uh, it's kind of fun. to We enjoy doing this podcast because we get to talk to so many different kinds of people and different uh, environments, different uh, technology environments, different experiences. Uh, and you've had a lot of experiences over the years. You've been doing this for a while, right? I have been doing this for a while. And more uh, uniquely, I had the opportunity to work on some of the earlier line of business, if you will, enterprise JavaScript applications back in the late 90s. So I've got a long tail of experience with watching the tools and technology evolve over the past couple decades, actually. Yeah, I remember, I think I met you around the time where we were both working with Silverlight and Flash technologies like a dozen years ago. Is that, that was you, right, Silverlight? That, that was me. Silverlight was my escape hatch from the, the pain of what JavaScript was like at the time. And uh, there, there were just, it was such an immature technology for what we were trying to make it do. It hadn't evolved to the tools and frameworks and libraries and scale that we have today. And so Silverlight made a, a lot of sense. It was a, a fun encounter. I, I kind of laugh about it because there is a tradition of, of developers who aren't JavaScript native developers. I've grown to love it, but I know that there's a love-hate relationship other people have with it. And when I was in Silverlight, I wrote my Silverlight book and published it weeks before 
it became very evident that Silverlight was not going to be a technology for the future. So it was Uh-oh. bad timing, and I did that. <laughs> oh, with a, man. I don't think yeah. I heard that story, Jeremy. That's a bummer. That, that is a bummer. And then I, I pivoted and wrote another book uh, over another technology that also became pretty much obsolete at the end of that book writing cycle. All right, so I'm a little worried now. So you only write books about technologies that go away? Uh, apparently so, because the the way I, I sort of realized this was when the friends of mine who weren't really big fans of JavaScript came to me and said, when are you going to write a JavaScript book? Uh, and that's the end of our show. <laughs> so, Jeremy, you're, start off you're like Nostradamus for what's not going to be around in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, and if, if you notice, I stopped writing books after that because I don't want to have that touch be responsible for entire technology platforms going away. I know that steps on some toes, so I'm trying to avoid that. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of funny. I stopped writing books, but for totally different reasons, uh, just because it took forever to write them. And by the time they were actually out, half the time the technology was on to another version. Right. Or obsolete. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, I want to I want to hit on something you you started with, which was you did JavaScript uh, a long time ago, and then you got into Silverlight because it was you said painful. Um, my words, not yours. But what I want to kind of pull out of that is you build a lot of enterprise apps for many many years for different companies. I know you were a consultant and did a lot of big stuff. Can you put in for the audience who may not have been around building enterprise apps back then of why JavaScript? wasn't a great choice back then to build those kind of apps, uh, in your opinion, versus what's changed to today? Sure. There there were a a few issues. And I think a lot of times people mistakenly say that JavaScript wasn't implemented consistently across browsers. So we had the so-called browser wars. Uh, Internet Explorer was obviously a huge browser, but we had Firefox. We had when uh, smartphones started to come out. Uh, you know, there Opera, there were Safari versions. And JavaScript itself actually was implemented pretty consistently, but the DOM, the interaction with the APIs that talked to the browser itself wasn't. And one of the main motivations for using JavaScript in the earlier days were to create better user experiences, right? So it wasn't good enough just to paint a static web page, and that was good enough. You wanted dynamic validation. You wanted to create an experience where maybe you hide part of the the application or the form until something else is filled out. And unfortunately, at the time, every single browser handled those different stylings and effects differently. And so a couple of the initial challenges back when it was more just UI glue was writing JavaScript that was compatible across browsers. In fact, I, just to give you an example of why this was painful, it's one thing to know a behavior and say that in this browser you hide a div in this way, in that browser you hide a div in a different way. And then you write some boilerplate code. Any code you looked at in the late 90s and early aughts was pretty much code that did some browser detection and then said if this browser do this, if that browser do that. And that was was painful. It required you know testing across multiple browsers. But where it really hurt was when you would do things like have JavaScript dynamically make a change and the browser would throw an exception. And it was like, why is it throwing this exception? Ironically, one of my most popular posts off my original blog I wrote back in early 2000s was a post about Internet Explorer 6. There was a click event 
And if you tried to manipulate the attributes on a DOM element in that click event, it would throw an exception because of the way that they implemented the, the internal model. It didn't have access to the DOM yet. So what you actually ended up having to do was set a timeout so that JavaScript would complete its event loop, and then you could change the attribute. It wouldn't allow you to change it while that event was being processed. But that was one of those things that in the early days was very obscure. Not many people knew about it. So you would have this what seemed to be a really simple step that you were trying to take that turned out to be days of research and effort to finally find a solution that's a simple solution, but very hard to, to come by. If so you this will. sounds really painful. I'm sure we've got lots of stories of those who have been through those times, but what has changed? Like, why is JavaScript a choice today? Why are you building? We're here to talk about JavaScript and Angular at scale. So why is it better today? So today, uh, the browsers themselves, I, I think there's, there's several steps that have, have taken place. First off, JavaScript itself has evolved as a language, and with browsers being released more quickly, versions being updated more quickly, there's faster adoption of the newer framework features. So there's things that would get people stuck in JavaScript development that are handled natively by the language. That's one. Number two is that we no longer have to jump through hoops to have a consistent document object model experience, DOM experience. In other words, the browsers are starting to get better at implementing the APIs that interact with the DOM. So I can pretty confidently today use some code to find an element and hide it and know that that's going to run consistently across browsers without having to have special code. And I think you know a huge step back in, I think it was around, what, 2006 that jQuery came out, and people talk about jQuery as a lot of things. I always simplified what jQuery did as it normalized the DOM. It gave me yeah. an API that I would write once, and the jQuery team was worried about making sure it was consistent across browsers, not my team, which saved me a lot of time and effort and pain. So that, that was the second piece is that consistent implementation of the DOM. And the third piece is mature frameworks that support out-of-the-box patterns, I think we've learned writing other types of software that promote scale. Things like uh, being able to register services and substitute a test service. Things like Like bringing in modern patterns and practices that we've been using in Java and C-sharp and other languages for years. Right. Which we can now actually apply to JavaScript. Right, and that that is huge, and that is the the big thing I learned on this massive Angular project was taking those concepts that applied to strongly typed languages and and maybe non web based applications and being able to support those in the web environment made a a massive difference. Yeah, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Hey, Ward, you know, I was building an application the other day, and I pulled in this really cool UI component, but it brought along a lot of dependencies with it. How do you deal with that? I don't like that, John. Um, it reminds me uh, that the AG Grid, which is a uh, an advanced uh, data, editable data table that we use in a lot of our enterprise apps because it, it addresses the complex scenarios we encounter, um, AG Grid doesn't have any dependencies at all. Zero dependencies. Well, tell me, why, why is that good? Like, what is the value of having zero dependencies? Well, it's, it's wonderful not having to wonder if while I'm pulling that in, I'm also pulling jQuery in or Lodash or who knows what. 
uh, in part because that's extra stuff coming over the wire. It's extra files that I don't know what they're all about. Uh, it means when my client security team has to evaluate this, they're evaluating AG Grid and not everything else that might be slipping in under the covers or something that we have to worry about there. You know, it's great to see this day and age, you can have a zero dependency library that does something like complex data grid functionality. So all of you out there, do check out AG Grid at their website at ag-grid.com. And we're back. And, you know, that's just to kind of summarize what you said. So you're talking about jQuery normalized, uh, working with the DOMs, uh, the DOM models and, and whatnot um, for everything that we did. You talked about as well some of these frameworks that, that have come out uh, along the way that kind of helps things out. And also the, the patterns that are there. Uh, Dan, you wrote a jQuery course, if I recall. Did you not? Yeah. You know, the funny thing is, it's still super popular. <laughs> it's still out um, there. I mean, people are using it, right? Yeah, it's on Pluralsight, and it's, it still does really well. And, you know, it's funny. I, I Everything you're covering, Jeremy, I just saw, uh, I don't know who it was. It was someone on Twitter did a whole, you know, series of kind of tweets, which Twitter's definitely not good at. But, <laughs> um, you know, I had, you know, one of ten type tweet type thing. And they went through uh, the whole scenario you're, you're talking about, which really is going to get us back to this scaling, you know, your, your code out, where, well, I don't need this. You know, the DOM is now standardized. So I'm just going to do my own thing because the DOM is, you know, whether it's Edge now or Chrome or even Safari for the most part, everything's pretty standardized. And then, you know, they went through the whole scenario. Okay, well, now I need routing. Oh, well, I'll just use this. And then anyway, it, it ended up, circling back to, never mind, I think I'll use one of the established frameworks. Because when you start uh, thinking about things like, for instance, even uh, just front-end security, there's just all kinds of stuff that if you don't know about escaping certain characters and all that, you know, you end up having to do that uh, somewhere, or else you can have even some problems there. So Anyway, I, I find it interesting that, yeah, jQuery was like that first stepping stone. And it literally, I would say, in my opinion, revolutionized uh, what we're talking about. And it kind of led us into these frameworks, whether it's Angular or React or Vue or some of the others. Yeah, it's almost to me like if I could, the way I view this is that things change so much that back then, if you try to design an enterprise system, it was almost like a square peg in a round hole. It just wasn't designed this way, like the browsers, JavaScript, everything we had really wasn't designed to make it easy to build these large systems. And why? Because a lot of these large systems need maintenance. They need scaling. You know, they need speed. They need all these things that we just take for granted out of the tools we've been using for 50 years in this industry. Uh, and now a lot of that's changed. Like we can build fast apps. We can build CI systems and testing solutions and automation and all that stuff has really changed so much and you know because enterprise kind of adopted JavaScript. And you started building some of these apps before it was uh, in vogue to do it. Uh, can you describe some of what those apps were and how that experience went and any tips you've got for it? Absolutely. So this major application that we worked on, there was a company that and set had- the time frame too, if you could, Jeremy. Uh, sure. So the the time frame I'm talking uh, actually, I need to do some some thought process here. Let's see back. I want to say this would have been if I've been at Microsoft almost two and a half years and three five, so probably about seven years ago. So we're talking about like 2011 2012 time frame, 
okay. is, is about right for this application. And we were approached, I was with a consulting firm at the time. Which, again, setting some context here, that was about the time that Silverlight and Flash were dying away. Correct. And that HTML5 was really starting to take off after many years of not moving forward. Uh, and the iPhone was really just about coming out at that time frame, like really getting popular, right? Right, exactly. It was a it was a very key time in software development because it you know the decade before was really the enterprise trying to figure out this web thing, and it's not that it was figured out by 2011, but many enterprises had decided that that was the surface area they wanted to play with. They were moving away from this idea of of having the overhead of an install process and having to support multiple types of platforms by giving you a client and now you're locked into this operating system, they started to recognize that there was a lot of freedom and benefit from providing a web-based interface because it was so accessible from different platforms, machines, specifications, et cetera. And at, you know, to Dan's point, the tooling had sort of opened up some opportunity. I think, to Dan's point, I, I think there are two key things that happen. One is jQuery, by normalizing the DOM, got rid of this fear and this pain point of having to code and test for multiple browsers, and it allowed people to start to take the the browser more seriously. Not that they hadn't been taking it seriously, but it was the the return on aggravation was so high, it was difficult to invest in web applications before that. So that shifted. The other thing that happened is we in the early 2000s in the enterprise had this chronic issue of people being behind closed doors and solving problems that other people had solved behind their closed doors. And there was a lack of really open sharing. And that was really shifting with the advent of open source projects. And and just to think, I mean, it seems like not that long ago, seven years ago, but this was a time frame that just to use Angular on the project, we had to get legal approval and go through a process where we literally had to stand in front of a panel of executives at the company that we were pitching to and create a presentation of why they should go through the legal hoops to get an accommodation because their policy was no open source software, period. And so we had to create an exception that they would approve at a corporate level to even use these software tools. And that was the first time I really recognized just what a pro and con open source can be. A pro because there's so many existing tools and solutions. It was opening it up. So if someone at Corporation X had solved the problem, we would have access to that solution. But the con is these solutions, as we know, have so many dependencies and there's so much opportunity for flaws and security defects to be introduced into the system. So it was a a lot of responsibility. But this company recognized that they had some broken processes. They had an application that was really spread across probably about 20 different components. There was an Excel component, there's an access component, there's a back-end Oracle database. There was, and it was all these isolated processes, and their vision was to create one seamless integrated solution and to present that solution through the web interface. And so it was a, a pretty huge undertaking. In fact, at, at the end of it all, it ended up being about a five-year probably three to four million dollar project. And yeah, to be fair, I, I also don't I think that 
while you went through that process with that company back then about open source, I still talk to companies today which have struggles using open source, uh, where it's um, where it's painful to sit down and go, okay, we're going to use React, Angular, anything open source. And they have to go through uh, processes and paperwork and panels and approvals just to use these tools. So um, I agree. I've been through that as well, but and I'm, I'm lucky. I feel lucky to come out the other end. Uh, but I think there's still a lot of folks out there, probably some of our listeners, love to hear from you all too, if you're still going through open source struggles. Well, and to tag onto that real quick, the company I was at, now this would have been many, many years ago, like 20 years ago. Um, there was one guy, remember, he was a manager of another team, which oddly enough was a, uh, a COBOL-based team. <laughs> but he was a huge advocate for open source technologies. And I, I still remember at the time, because this literally, gosh, this was probably, well, it was a little more, more than 20 years now, I guess, but it's probably 2001, 2002 timeframe. And I still remember going, why would I use that? Because I'd never done it before. You know, it was brand new. And he was the first really exposure I had to it. He'd always come by. We were pretty good friends and talk. But it was a really hard sell because it's just, it was new to the organization. And I think that's why, Jeremy, you had to go through that big process, right? Because it was just a whole, like, new way to approach software development. It, it was. And it, it was interesting, too, the, the, the pitch that we made because they had a tool implemented as a, a client application. I think it was a WinForms application. And they had these configuration stacks for reports. And this was a survey company, so they would collect survey data. But don't think simple survey. They had a psychometrician, so people who are versed in the science of the psychology behind engineering surveys to get results. And they would use surveys as a tool to assess companies and then provide feedback on how to improve the company, the culture, the productivity, et cetera, and then issue the surveys again to get results and show improvements. But they had this massive database, and their whole secret sauce was this ability to have different hierarchies. So think about, uh, let me compare your company with the average company in your industry or with the average company of your size or with another company that's international. So there are all these different ways to slice and dice. So they had this tree that could potentially have a million rows that are hierarchical nodes on a tree that you would navigate to. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We could rename this episode Great UI Design by (laughs) Exactly. And that was actually, that was probably an entire sprint, right? It was a few week cycle of trying to convince them that just because that's the way the UI was, shouldn't necessarily be the way it would be. We lost that battle. And so the next step was to show that we could actually implement it. They didn't think it could be done in uh, JavaScript. And so we used a, a component tool that was a collapsible tree, and then we introduced some of these like jQuery and, and Angular. And we did a demonstration of actually loading a million node. And we didn't actually load a million nodes, but we loaded right the collapse nodes and handled the expansion and whatever but it was a, a visual performance test. And when they saw that that was possible and feasible and that they would be able to translate this to the web, that's when they said, okay, let, let's make it happen and let's move forward. So we've talked a lot about how we, we got to this point, right? And you've learned lessons along the way. Let's fast forward now to today. Uh, you're a developer, like many of our listeners, who are building these kinds of applications. And you've learned a lot of tips along the way on how to scale these apps. Uh, what, what would you 
kind of lend to our listeners on what, what did you learn? What worked? What didn't work? Yeah, that that's great because that is exactly what we had to do. And when I talk about scale, I, I sort of talk about scaling the team to create apps that scale because there's two sides to the equation. One of them is as we're building the application and we have obviously deadlines and, and goals to get things out. We know as seasoned developers that you don't necessarily throw 15 more people at a project and it becomes 15 times more uh, successful, faster, velocity, et cetera. However, there is something to be said that as you scale out teams and have larger teams, you should be able to approach it in a way that you see some gains in productivity and velocity. And so what we learned from an aspect, I'm going to rewind, when we first started writing this application, we were writing it using a very simple data binding framework. It was Knockout at the time and pure JavaScript. And the, the first thing that we learned was that pure JavaScript at that time, because of the dynamic nature of the language and the immaturity of tooling, was very difficult to scale for team members. For new team members to come on and understand what was happening with the code base was a challenge. We had a, a very high overhead ramping up people. So the way that we addressed that was twofold. One is we did a spike. We, we took two weeks and, and tested the project. Because one of our team members said, hey, there's this thing called Angular. But at the same time, if you remember, the first version of Angular to be released was a pure JavaScript version. At the same time, we evaluated TypeScript because we felt like TypeScript would help scale the development side of the project. Why? Because (laughs) of the discoverability. So in other words, you know, I always tell people there's some JavaScript purists that we worked with on the team who later, by the way, became converts that said the great thing about the language is that dynamic and morphs, et cetera, which I agree 100%. But I said, at the end of the day, if you have a function that expects to add two numbers, your expectation is to get a number. Passing it a string just doesn't make sense. JavaScript will allow you. That's great. That's flexible, et cetera. But for that piece of business functionality, You want to make it clear that you're expecting two numbers and you're going to return a number. And TypeScript did two things for us. One, it gave us the ability to annotate the code so it was more discoverable. I could come into the project and look at a function and know exactly what that function expected and exactly what I was going to get back from it. The Which second is basically thing it, what we've been having from like C Sharp and Java and every other type language for years, right? So it brings exactly. this to the web. Yeah, and I, I say... You know, the closer you can catch things at development time, the better, right? It's just, it's lower overhead, lower expense. And so adding TypeScript caught issues just by making that choice to switch to that. We saw increases of velocity, and it's hard to say what was Angular and what was TypeScript because we sort of staged those pretty closely together. But we saw about a four-time increase of velocity. So from a story saying we need to add this feature to getting the feature out was about a four-time boost. And a big part of that was You're talking JavaScript, sorry, you're talking AngularJS as well, right? The first version. That is correct, yes. Which, but not a lot of people were using TypeScript at the time for AngularJS, if I recall. Right. Yeah, and and we, when we looked at that, we basically did a retrospective. We had developed for six months and for some strange reason, the customer wanted things to happen faster, quicker, with fewer resources. I don't know if anyone's ever heard that before, but 
That was the directive. Code Most more, places I work want to go slower, use more resources, <laughs> exactly. spend a lot of money. Have more bugs. <laughs> exactly. Let, let's spend more money and release this later with a lot more defects. So we did this retrospective, and we looked at a few things. And, and the two things we realized were, one, we were getting stuck with an inconsistent approach to how we manipulated widgets in the DOM. So in other words, uh, some people were using jQuery, some people were using it in certain ways, and, and there just wasn't a good prescriptive approach we had to the DOM. And we thought, you know, if we go with Angular, one of the huge features of Angular is data binding. And if we use data binding, we can have this, this separation between what the logic and the set of data we need to render is and the actual template to re- render it. And we have more flexibility because it's not tied into the code. It's not hard-coded that I'm creating a span and a div. It's part of a template. So that was the one okay. side of it. Jeremy, I, I want to stop you for a sec because I'm going to I'm going to play the devil's advocate a little bit too here. Of you know you know I love JavaScript, I love TypeScript, and, and a lot of these frameworks. And you're talking about how TypeScript and brings all this great experience, and then the, even like data binding and stuff from um, you know Angular in this case, Angular JS at the time. Uh, it makes the experience better, reduces some of your bugs. But you know we've we've had this uh, for a while. So the devil's advocate to me says, okay, great, but. What else do you do beyond the tools like TypeScript and Angular to kind of help scale these apps? Like, let's say you don't know what framework you're going to have, React, Angular, Vue, Ember. You know, maybe you're using TypeScript, maybe you're not. Uh, does that mean, I, I know you're not saying this, but devil's advocate, does that mean that if I'm not using Angular and TypeScript, I can't build scalable apps today? Not, not at all. And this is where the approach, one of the things we liked about Angular, but it's really true for these other approaches, is that it was prescriptive to a modular approach. And even adopting Angular, and I don't know how many listeners were around in the, the Angular JS days and dollar sign scope, and there were a lot of very specific ways that you had to configure the application to make it work. But based on experience from the .NET and the C Sharp side of things, we decided we wanted to approach the code base in a sense that as much code did not care about the framework as possible. And what that means is if you have a piece of business logic, if you have a validation, that validation can be implemented as a JavaScript function that doesn't care what framework it lives in. So I get input, I give output. I have a string, I validate the string, I output it. That is pure JavaScript code, and we mandated that we would get to as much pure JavaScript code as as possible. And there's a a little caveat to this that I'll add in the end. But by doing that, Angular became sort of the lattice that that plugged into. So it was a connector. It was (laughs) a a way of, of having different components. So I could have a team on the other side of the planet working on a component that's part of my page independently. They could write the code. They could test the code. They can do so many things with the the code base, and then we would bring it together, and it would plug in this component model. And that component approach is something that is independent of of Angular, right? And the the caveat that I added to this is Angular 2 was a huge jump from AngularJS, completely changed the approach. But because we tried to keep the code as unreliant on Angular as possible. In other words, that function doesn't plug directly into Angular. It's a standalone function, standalone set of tests, and then we have some glue code that brings it into the Angular controllers. That code was easy to migrate 
to Angular 2 later in the day, and it would have been just as easy to reuse that as part of React or Vue or another type of framework. So let me uh, jump in because there was a company in Texas I worked with that did something very similar, and they would basically abstract as much as they could, and correct me if I'm wrong here with what your scenario was, into, we'll just call it pure JavaScript, TypeScript, whatever, and then that would then ultimately fit into, if you will, the framework you were using, and that way it wouldn't be so hard to jump between you know different types of frameworks because... In other words, you're abstracting away as many of the framework concepts as possible. And that way, that code is kind of vanilla JavaScript, right? Is that kind of what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. So let me ask on that, when it comes to organizing that code, uh, because obviously when you get to scale, you start having to kind of put things in buckets. What techniques would you recommend for people to help keep that organized? Because you mentioned you might have teams in different locations, for example. So any things you can share there? Um, the approach that, that we took, and it, it's a little bit interesting because the whole um, selling point of Angular was that it was a single-page application so that you have this dynamic refresh. We found quickly our application ended up with literally thousands of controllers in it. It was a massive Code base and it doesn't help anyone to like throw out oh million fifty lines of code or whatever. So I try to not get too caught up in those stats. But we had a, a lot of code and and a few of the things we did was we we created what we called at the time a spa hybrid approach, which now I think people would just call it a micro front end. In other words, we didn't try to create one application that did everything. So we had an accounting section, a sales section, and those would be their own apps that just integrated under the same domain. So at the end of the day, it was just like another path in the URL bar, but they were actually different self-maintained modules of the application. And we had a global you know, security model that would hand off identity and authentication and everything across those. So to the user, it felt like a seamless experience. But for maintainability, we were able to, to build an isolation. And the, the two tenants that we focused on were, one, being able to build a code in isolation. I should be able to, as a developer on day one, be able to pull down a piece of code, compile it, run the tests, and not have to jump through complex hoops to get my environment up and running. And the other thing is just componentization at a hierarchical level. In other words, there were components that were pieces of functionality. There were components that were applications. Everything we did was it had boundaries around it so that if I'm working on an identity piece, I can work on my identity piece and not be concerned with sales or shopping cart or the hierarchical time uh, uh, tree that I was talking about. But I think one of the, the biggest benefits for us, and I'll, I'll try to wrap this quickly because I know I'm kind of covering a bunch of different areas, but I was not a huge fan of, of testing at the time. I was one of those, you kind of write tests after the fact. And we had someone on the team who was very adamant about the importance of tests and wanted everything to have tests and, and test coverage. So what we started to do was adopt an approach that new code was written with tests and existing code, if we had a defect, we had to try to write a test that would fail because of the defect and then fix it and show the test was positive. And it seemed like extra work and effort up front. But what we found is after we went through a few months of, of normalizing to this uh, testing approach, 
we found when people joined the team, they were able to get up and running faster because how easy is it, is it to verify your code? You pull it down and run the test suite. But the other thing is people were using the tests as ways to understand how to use the components. So the test has to set up the component and sets the expectations. So it became a form of documentation. So I think the modularity, the idea of, of not depending on the framework entirely, of having the code as independent as possible where it made sense, and then plugging it in and then that testing, all of those together really lent Kinda to being out. able to yeah. let people build in parallel and independently and distribute. You know, I, I feel like I'm hearing some of the same things that Dan often talks about. And I'll, I'll defer to you, Dan, on this, because the reason I'm saying this is a lot of times you and I have talked, or I've heard you talking with your customers or out uh, at workshops or conferences, I hear you talking about how important to you this modularization is. Why? Yeah, and in all fairness, John knows exactly what I'm going to say. Because <laughs> we've, we've talked about this together. He's just being nice. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's, and to kind of, I guess I'll toot my own horn here. For those that are interested and have Pluralsight, go check out. I have an Angular architecture course, if you do Angular, that goes into some of this. But, you know, I, th I think some of the big things, and you've touched on a lot of these, Jeremy, but uh, modularization, super, super important that before you start the app, you're thinking through the structure of how we're going to, I think of it as buckets and Legos and everything in, I don't know, for some reason, every analogy I seem to have these days fits well with Legos and yeah, you do really like buckets. your Legos quite a bit. I, I, apparently I do. <laughs> for, for me, it's Lincoln Logs, but I mean, he's keeping Yeah, track, Lincoln so. Logs, there you yeah. go. Uh, the other thing is now that you have done that and you're, you're, you called it a kind of micro front end, John and I, back in the past, we used to kind of joke, we called them mini spas. Right. Uh, where, yeah, you would each feature could actually be its own mini app, and then you would have a, a way to tie those together. Now, it does mean that in that world, each one is reloading that uh, screen, if you will. So it's not a spot in the sense that one screen never goes away, per se, although that would be possible. Um, and I, I actually kind of like that approach for huge, huge apps because, like you said, you can really isolate it. But that, that's another thing that, going back to what I was kind of talking about with modularization, you got to plan this stuff. You know, if your team's not sitting down and going to the whiteboard or paper or, you know, whatever we have these days and thinking in terms of, okay, what buckets do we have? How is that going to help us divide up labor across the team? Of course, that can get into testability and all that stuff you mentioned, Jeremy. And then from there, are we going to load everything at once? Are we going to lazy load? How is that going to be organized? Because I think every massively uh, scalable app out there runs into this where they didn't think about it. And next thing you know, you're loading the whole app at startup, you know, not, not the micro or mini spa concept, right. you're loading the whole thing. And next thing you know, you're like, why is it taking 10 seconds to load the homepage? <laughs> So, and, you know, we can go on and on and on. And um, so John and I are real big proponents. And I know, Jeremy, based on what you've said, you are too, of taking that time to plan for the scale. Because while TypeScript and testing, all the stuff we've talked about definitely helps, you still have to plan it out and think through that process for these, you know, massively scalable apps. And, and I think one of the things that was very strong for us on this project was we had clearly identified domain experts on the customer side. We tried to get down to one or two product experts, but it was just so massive 
they ended up with like a flow chart to figure out who did what. But at the end of the day, we would agree on a, call it a domain contract, right? A domain model. And so I know I have a widget that I'm going to display and interact with. And what was beautiful about that is as a developer, I could create a piece of code that took in a widget and mock an API that just gives me a hard-coded widget and mock a horrible UI that displays the widget because I'm not a designer. But I was able to complete that functionality. Someone else could then implement the actual API call for that because we've already agreed on the contract. We've already agreed on what we're going to show. So I can have that mocked. It doesn't stop my development. They go and actually wire in the API, and then I have a designer come in independently and clean up the UI piece of that, and they don't have to touch any of the code because we're using data mining templates, and so they prettify the template. So we had actual parallel development, not just across features, but across layers of the front end through the back end, and it made it possible because we did the planning up front to agree on what that domain model and what those contracts look like. You know, there's, uh, there's so many things to me that we could pick out of today's episode uh, for different scaling concerns. And we talked a little bit about testing. And, and Jeremy, you danced on a lot of these ideas, as you mentioned. You know, there's, there's testability side, the componentization, the modularity. Uh, also, Dan, your you're big focus on designing before you actually move forward. Uh, I know you, you like to sit down with your customers and kind of plan out at least for a day, you know, what exactly are we building yeah. before you start and my gosh, that is so valuable. And I think in some ways we've gone from one extreme to the other where uh, for years we had this waterfall design idea. And it's still out there. Uh, and it's still being used by some folks uh, successfully. But a lot of the shift was in the beginning with waterfall, design everything up front, take weeks or months if you need to, and then don't change a thing and then build exactly what you planned. And the problem with that we found over years was things change. You forget things and the business evolves and, you know, so that's hard to lock into, whereas Agile lets you kind of design a little, build a little, design a little, build a little, and you kind of, you know, you're more free-flowing, um, It's which is difficult because you have to be disciplined to not exceed your overall scope, but it allows you to at least make sure the product is, you know, actually being delivered the way that the person wants it. But we went from one end to the other, really rigid to really flexible and I feel like sometimes when people do this agile stuff these days, they forget that at the beginning of a sprint or the beginning of any development cycle, it's really, really valuable to sit down and say, okay, get your fingers off the keyboard for a minute. What are we building? What is this thing actually supposed to do? And decide that up front, because sometimes you find things like, oh, yeah, you know what? We're going to have to solve this problem. Like, how are they going to log into this part of the system um, or maybe not log in because this part of the system needs to be accessible even if you're not logged in, but then later you got to log in. So how are we can make part of it behind a wall and part of it not behind it? Who's going to figure this out? And these are the kind of things I think that uh, it's really important to just sit down and say, let's think about this. Uh, Dan, you have a slide in one of your workshops that kind of goes over like a dozen of these topics. Uh, I know one of them is security, for example. Uh, can you rattle yeah. off a couple of the others? Yeah. So, I'm, well, first one is, you know, what is the app? Okay. We, we would that's helpful. We know that. <laughs> a little bit helpful to know that. Uh, what are the key features? Because that's going to get into some of the modularity and Jeremy, some of the stuff you talked about with, if you go the micro or mini spa approach, then those features might be the mini spas if you do that. Uh, logging. 
security. Uh, what are your domain models you're sending? In other words, what's the raw data being sent across the wire? Because we all are guilty, I think, of if you own the API as well as the front end code, you know, kind of full stack of sending bigger objects that are actually needed, you know, and then right. all of a sudden you're like, why are we sending a million records? We don't, we only need two. Uh, what else do we have? Uh, security you mentioned. Um, I'm trying to think of the bottom row. There's nine of them that I go through. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I'm trying to remember the last three. But anyway, yeah, those are some of the, the key ones uh, that we go through. And what I found is, first off, instead of having, like, say, Jeremy, you're the architect, and John and I are on the team, instead of having Jeremy just decide, I've actually found it's really helpful to open something like Office 360 uh Wait, 360, 365? My mind's going blank. Whatever it is, Word <laughs> uh, online where you can edit at the same time on a document. Or uh, I use Google Docs a lot for that because all of a sudden you'll get everybody involved and they'll have these ideas. And while I'm talking, you could be adding your thoughts into this document and then we can review those. Whereas if just the architect talks and the team members are kind of I don't know, just sitting there doing nothing. You just don't have as many ideas I've found. And it's funny how involved the developer, the developer team will get if you let them get involved um, with the architecture you know, of the app. Thanks, Dan. And Jeremy, we've talked a lot about a lot of different pieces here for scaling. And I, I know that a lot of times we get into these discussions and there's so much to cover, but we end up forgetting like the one key thing. It's like, if you could... Just go back and before Alaska projects that you built and say, you know what? I wish I could tell my younger self this thought before building an app that would really help me scale it out better. What would you leave as a final thought for our listeners? And we can go around the table here and we'll start with you, Jeremy. So I, I think it's a, a very simple concept that that sort of waterfalls into to other ideas, and that is code complete at at the end of each publish. So in other words, continuous deployment and every week or two weeks or whatever. I have a complete working production product. If you focus on that, that means that your your modularity, your testing, your continuous deployment, your security, everything falls into place. And that's I used to have this idea we had to spend four months building the base architecture and doing this, that, and the other. And when we shifted and started building apps and thinking about every two weeks or one week or whatever our iteration is, there's a fully functional version. It may not have all the features, but you can do something with that application, that's when you get that feedback loop and it drives the quality of the product to be able to meet the demand of having that continuous deployment. Awesome. Dan, what's your final thought for our audience? Well, since we're in uh, 2020, I'm going to kind of break away from what we've been talking about. Um, two things. Number one, uh, use this opportunity of we're in a new year and I don't know when this is scheduled to come out, but it'll be towards the beginning of 2020, I'm sure. Um, use this opportunity to explore some other areas you haven't explored. It's, and this ties into my second concept of, uh, or thought of, I think many of us, and I'll include myself here, we live in these kind of echo chambers and you tend to side with people that think like you think. And on Twitter, it's like a cesspool of this sometimes where, you know, if you're not in this echo chamber, you're wrong. Well, when it comes to technology, um, start maybe diving into some other areas that you know your app is going to need, especially on these larger scale apps, so that you have a better understanding. 
I mean, it's great if you're just a front-end developer, for example, and you don't know the back-end, but think about how much more uh, powerful your skill set's going to be if you also can give feedback on some of the back-end stuff as well, or vice versa. Maybe you're a back-end developer that works with front-end developers. Um, you know, Think about that. Because that's going to help you with the scalability of these apps by kind of breaking out of that bubble, if you will, and exposing yourself to some other thought processes and other technologies. Thanks. And, and I'll leave you with a couple of quick tips, folks. Uh, some things I've learned that I, I find useful, and some of these may be common sense you might be using today, and others maybe you can start to adopt. Uh, the first one is commit often. Uh, whenever I commit, I try to commit small bytes that make sense and give them halfway decent comments so I know what they were. But maybe more importantly is push pull requests more often. So push up to your repository and make a pull request that is consumable by somebody to review it and that makes sense. And have those pull requests, another tip in there is have those pull requests be built with CI. So test those out. So before you're allowed to merge anything into your main branches, make sure they're actually compiling and building. So all this stuff, whether you do it in the pull request or back on your own computer with CI, Make sure these things actually work before you branch in. And the earlier you do it and the more you get yourself into these uh, cycles and the process of actually testing and building your code, it really helps make your code easier to uh, be proud of that you're not going to have this you know, broken code in production and worrying about it or even down the line. And it really kind of lets you freeze your mind to kind of move forward as this stuff um, builds out. And I find that helps me scale, not just the code, but me. And the last piece is on performance. I find a lot of times people really worry about performance so much, it's almost paralysis, where they try to over-optimize everything up front. The best thing I find is to put something up there, throw the spaghetti against the wall, see what sticks there. See if your app is slow in the first place. If it's not, you're good. If it is slow and you want to test it at different speeds, like throttling, but if it is slow in some places, then start taking a look at different things. Now, there is some stuff you can do up front for optimization, like preloading strategies and lazy loading, and obviously getting rid of dead code and, and bundling with tools like Webpack. So all those things should be used. But I find overall the best thing to do is to not think too much about performance up front because you really can spend a ton of time on stuff that might only save you, you know, five milliseconds down the road and cost you weeks or months of coding and, and uh spinning your own wheels. Hey, Jeremy, thanks a lot for coming on today. And I really appreciate you talking about your journey through building apps at scale. Do you ever build small apps, by the way? I build tons of small apps. I'm, <laughs> I'm a coder at heart and uh, a week doesn't go by that I'm not working on something. So That's awesome. And for all of you who don't know about Jeremy, definitely check out his information up here on Twitter. He tweets quite a bit and writes quite a bit. He's got some really great articles out there. Uh, we put some of that in the show notes. So He does. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Jeremy. And thank you all for listening to us in yet another episode and another year of Real Talk JavaScript. You'll hear from us every Tuesday morning. Thanks for listening to Real Talk JavaScript. This show and all of our shows are available at www.realtalkjs.com with links and notes. John and Ward would love to hear what you think, especially about potential guests and topics for future shows. Follow and send them a message on Twitter at RealTalkJS. 